superheroes and super twisted plots. Is Sophocles a better psychological playwright than Euripides? How can we understand ancient art? And would Plato have liked Cubism? Hello, this is Anya Leonard, founder and director of Classical Wisdom. You are listening to Classical Wisdom Speaks, a podcast dedicated to bringing ancient wisdom to modern minds. This Classical Wisdom Speaks episode is with Nicholas Pappas, Professor of Philosophy and Executive Officer of the Philosophy Program at the City University of New York Graduate Center. He is an expert in Plato and author of several books, including Plato's Exceptional City, Love and Philosopher, Politics and Philosophy in Plato's Menonexus, as well as the Rutledge Guidebook to Plato's Republic. We discuss how we can understand ancient art and theater and the role psychology plays in this understanding. But before we begin, a quick thank you to our Classical Wisdom Society members who make this podcast possible. If you would like to become a society member and help support the classics, please go to classicalwisdom.com and click start here. Now, on to art, theater, psychology, and more. And I think the best place to begin is with aesthetics. Um, so basically, you have written quite a lot about aesthetics. Uh, and perhaps a nice place to start would to be describe how poetry and the arts were sort of understood in the ancient world. And in what ways are they sort of different from our modern era? Yeah, thank you. Uh, and, and first of all, let me just thank you for this uh, kind invitation and for this opportunity to chat. Um, I've, I've been thinking how best to begin because of course you, you, you identify exactly the issue when we're talking about something like, like art forms from the ancient world. Uh, the issue is, is how to keep in mind both the appropriate similarities and the appropriate differences. Uh, you know, we don't want to be anachronistic and imagine that we just came across Oedipus Rex last week, it you know, could have been written last week, but we also don't want to uh, lock uh, classical writings away in some kind of vault and imagine them as completely disconnected from us. Okay, so, well, so having said that, now let me just say how I came to do so much about ancient aesthetics, fair question. I actually started my philosophizing uh, worrying about issues in modern aesthetics, uh, mostly having to do with the literary arts. What is an interpretation? What is a metaphor? Uh, I was working with, uh, I was studying with Stanley Cavell, uh, and, and I was brought through him to questions of literature, like uh, a, a type of question about literature that really engaged him, especially in connection with Shakespearean tragedy, uh, was was how a literary work addressed a philosophical problem like the problem of knowledge. Now, uh, Cavell's questions were always very much rooted in modernity and modernism. And I, I still think they're very important approaches to modern phenomena. But by that time, I was trying to coordinate what he said with other issues I was thinking about with um, antiquity, like what was going on with problems of knowledge in ancient tragedy. You know, there's one way in which 
um, Hamlet doesn't know what's going to happen to Claudius after Claudius dies. Uh, Lear doesn't know whether his children love him. Uh, now in Sophocles, both uh, Electra in her play and Oedipus in the play named after him, they're both denied knowledge, but in a different way. And the audience is watching them knowing something that they respectively fail to know. That's not exactly the problem with, we have with Hamlet. When Hamlet wonders, you know, is Claudius possibly going to go to heaven? And then what's the point of my killing him? Well, it's not as though we in the audience know, you know, surprise, Claudius isn't going, right? We, we don't have that, that, that knowledge. So it, it's just a different uh, orientation toward uh, knowledge, how human beings relate to knowledge, and how human beings can assess one another's knowledge. So uh, that's just one example of, of what you and I were just talking about, the, the overlap and yet the, the difference and how we, how we try to ride the balance. I feel like there are a lot of modern comparisons in which the audience does know exactly what's going to happen as long as it's a story that is so ingrained in our culture. And I mean, maybe a cheesy but very modern example would be like origin stories of Batman or something like that or the Joker or something. You watch the Joker and you're like, yeah, I know what's going to happen because these stories are, are so familiar. And so for the ancient audience, they would have known Oedipus's story so well. Uh, that's true. Uh, hmm. Oh, we could we could really go into that. Do you like whether the Joker is a tragedy? Uh, hmm. Aristotle would would have problems there, although it's certainly enough of a tragedy for for Plato to object to it. But uh, I, I love I love that example. Not no cheese in that example at all, from what I can see. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe superheroes might be. Yeah. Yeah. Know? Okay. Yeah. And superhero. I mean the uh, the very interest in superheroes itself feels to me like some some kind of hope for a classical literature you know what i mean uh, it it never works i always think that i'm i always think that i'm just denying myself these superhero movies and i was actually i was in taiwan all by myself and it was one of those sudden shifts of night and day so i knew i wasn't going to sleep and I found that Thor was playing on, uh, on, on TV. So I thought, what a perfect time to just watch Thor. And I hate to say this, I couldn't tolerate it. <laughs> I, really, I really thought it was this guilty pleasure. And in fact, it wasn't. That wasn't where my guilty uh, pleasures lay. But still, this, this thought that you're going to like Thor or uh, Captain America... See, to my mind, that's the impulse that also pulls us to ancient mythology, you know, or, or rather it's the, it's, it's the desire for mythology that makes us still enjoy Thor and Captain America. Uh, but I wanted, to, <laughs> I wanted to answer your question um, about points of contact and points of difference. And one thing I would, I would start with, there, when you talk whether about tragedy or uh, the visual arts, um, there are there are two um, two differences I would want to talk to. One of them is 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 well known and talked about a lot, uh, and the other one is also well known and 
in my experience, not talked about very much at all. So let me start there. And that is the, the, the rarity of people's exposure to the arts in the ancient world. If you lived in ancient Athens, so we're not even imagining you in, in, a, in a little small town in antiquity, but if you were in, in classical Athens, you know, you'd see some sculptures in the heart of town, assuming that you had reason to go to the heart of town. Farmers pretty much stayed on their land unless they came in for the assembly. Uh, music, well, you might hear music at a dinner party or if someone were singing or at a special festival. Drama, you'd see at its peak when they had the two uh, dramatic festivals, you might be in for six days of theatrical performances in a year. Okay. So when, when someone like Plato sounds terrified about the effect of going to the theater, you have to remember he's imagining the response someone is gonna have to seeing a handful of plays in a year. And today, when we worry about, let's say violence on television, you know, you may have heard these statistics. Uh, a child has seen 8,000 murders on TV by the time they finish elementary school. By the time of, uh, by the time you're 18, you have seen 200,000 violent acts on TV. Right, right. <laughs> it's a lot. That's not, uh, you know, you know, that's the wrong time for someone to say, well, you have to put it in context. <laughs> it's yeah. not in, in context. Uh, but but when you assess that, you think, well, if I don't know how many violent acts would be the, the right number to see by the time you finish high school, it's certainly not 200,000. But we, we talk about it as if we were talking about cholesterol in the food, you know, or, or, or fats. Right. Uh, but but Plato is is talking about something quite different. And, and when we identify the plays that he could see with the plays that we can see, we we have to take note of this difference. He's talking about some corrupting effect that they have where you could be ruined by seeing a few. Mm. You know, he's not worried that you're going to go in and see Oedipus day after day and, you know, and, and have this effect on your psyche. You see, it, it's, it's more like, pardon the comparison, <laughs> it's more like inhaling the virus than like, like eating fatty foods. So, yeah, that, that's amazing to think that, uh, I mean, I, I guess when you, when you do think about it, you see Oedipus Rex once, like, you're not going to forget it. I mean, ever. That's it's right. not like one that you watch <laughs> and you're like, what did I watch last night? You know, that doesn't happen. <laughs> I just realized I saw this before. Wait a minute. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, wait, wait, he sleeps with his mother. That's what happens. Oh, I <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> That's right. You're trying to guess it like it's an episode of murder. She wrote, you know, wait a minute. Oh, we're going to figure out who got Laios. So and so when well, of course, Aristotle defends the uh, mimetic presentation, whether of poetry or, or visual art, Plato is suspicious of them. But in both cases, they're responding to something that that was really quite rare in experience, mm -hmm. you know, and I, I do think that's one one difference to keep in mind. The other difference, the, the one I said that is talked about a lot, so I don't need to say too much, is, is the, re, the religious function. I mean, as you know, 
tragedies were related to the, the worship of Dionysus. It was a, a, a tragic festival, part of the celebration of Dionysus. In terms of, of visual arts, we'll take, take sculptural forms. Uh, sure, by the time we get to the classical era, we have these, these statues that, that we can look at and say, well, that looks so realistic, especially when it's a, um, a man, a young adult or adult man, and often represented naked. Uh, women were not in that period. You know, I mean, after all, we know what human beings look like. We say, wow, that really looks like, like a human being. So in, in that sense, by the way, one way in which uh, visual art can connect us with other times is to the extent that it depicts the, the human form, right? Because human beings biologically haven't changed that much. Uh, but then you have this whole other tradition of sculpture. Uh, uh, a tombstone with a figure on it was not just a representation, but it was thought to make communication possible uh, with the, the shade of the person in the underworld. Um, on the island of Samos, a plank of wood washed ashore and uh, it was treated as, as a representation of the goddess Hera, Samos, of course, being the island of Hera. Not that it looked like her. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I, I suppose it had to be minimally like human proportions, uh, a, a plank like that. But uh, you would have, or, or you would have um, little wax figures uh, that, were, that were treated as representations either of the gods, you pray to these figures to make contact with the gods, or you, or, or you might make contact with a lost uh, family member or, or spouse in that way. And, and this has nothing to do with the mimetic function of, of statuary, something that we immediately grasp. And here's, here's the, the point I wanted to make, not just that uh, the ancient Greeks had these these religious and superstitious uses of sculpture, they considered that the known quantity. Like, well, so, so even Plato, you know, he has his character say, well, sure, ghosts uh, hang around the tombs, you know, for some days after the person dies. Sure, we pray to the little votive images we have at home in order to connect with the gods. He doesn't have any problem with thinking of sculpture that way, you know, but, you know, God help you if you wanted to make a representational one, one that looked like someone else that runs into problems. Whereas for us, it's the opposite. It makes total sense if you've got a visual art that looks like the thing it represents. Once you start imagining that it connects you with unseen forces, that would need to be understood. Yeah, I mean, that's really interesting on several different historical points I'm kind of putting together in my head here. But one, I mean, the, the concept of imbuing a statue with sort of more life or meaning seems to be like a common trait that you have in pre-literate societies, like the totem, you know, you see the originals or everywhere in Southeast Asia and in the Amazon, that that's kind of like a common thing. And then at the same time, you think of the idea that representing a person directly 
seems to be more in keeping with, say, the Judeo-Christian Abrahamic religions where you are afraid of, you know, the representation of a human and that leads to iconoclasm. So it's weird that you would have these sort of two different trends that would happen sort of at the same time in Greece when they seem to be happening at completely other time periods and places elsewhere. Ah, that's very interesting. Yes. And, oh, gosh. Well, there's a, there's a, a, a now, in, I have to say the same thing to you. There are some, like, three great tangents we could go off to what you said. Uh, one of them, I would say, is Clement of Alexandria. I, I mean, he's, he's writing uh, before Christianity has been officially tolerated in the empire, but as it's growing, as it's institutionalized. And, and he's writing to try to win the Greeks over from their uh, primitive polytheistic religion. Okay. But at the same time, Clement knows that there were some smart philosophers and he tries to incorporate them. He's especially fond of Plato. So, so Clement, then he's, he's trying to do something contradictory. And, and, and I think you put your finger on why it's contradictory. He uses Plato's arguments against uh, resemblance, representation in, in statuary, but he associates the resemblance with the human uh, impulse to pray to statues, even though that was not historically what was going on. It was really the non-iconic representations that were the more, uh, that were treated as, as, as objects of worship. So, so Clement tries to run it all together and condemn ancient Greek art and ancient Greek religion using Plato where he can, even though Plato's got a, a, a different purpose in mind, a different agenda. Yeah, yeah you can see how that it, it becomes problematic pretty quickly. But why, why did exactly Plato not like the representation of, of persons? I mean, I understand for iconoclasm that it, it's a religious element. Was it the same? Yeah. Uh, no. Well, maybe in the back of his mind, part of his motive is that, that he sees, he sees something that had been functioning perfectly well in a religion being taken over and, and made into this more secular art form. This is speculation because we don't get very much along these lines in Plato. I mean, if you'll, uh, Okay, so, so the, the modern analogy that leaps to my mind is that uh, uh, I'm thinking of it because I saw the, the movie about Ray Charles, you know, and, and uh, Ray Charles used uh, musical forms and, and chord progressions that had been associated with gospel music and made them into this very That's exciting right. popular music. All right, so you can imagine... Um, uh, a devotee of, of gospel music thinking that, you know, we can't have that. It's making uh, the sacred into the profane. That's right. Exactly. Now, so I do think there's an element of that in Plato, but not highly articulated. When it comes to statuary, it's interesting because sometimes he, you know, that's, that's, that's never his main uh, his main target when he's worried about the arts. And sometimes Plato talks about visual representations in general as if they were just fine. Um, people don't notice, for example, in the, in the Republic after condemning 
uh, a lot of, of drama, uh, he turns around and says, well, we have to expose uh, young people to the right kind of visual representations and inspire them to the right actions. But uh, when he does go after visual art, it's interesting, it's, it's, it's not just that it looks like something else, it's the way that it's, that, that it's trying to, it's pandering to your vision. I'll give you one example. Suppose, you know, you see a tree reflected in a pond. That's a natural made representation. Uh, Plato says in, in his dialogue, the sophist, the gods make representations like that. No problem there. But suppose you have a large statue and it's so large that when we stand at the foot of the statue and we look up, the head and the shoulders look too small, right? We get the proportions wrong because of perspective. Hence and Michelangelo's David has a huge head. Right? Exactly. And from what we're told, I don't know whether this is true, even at an earlier age when the statues were big enough, sculptors used to do that. So the big statue of Athena in, in uh, the Parthenon, apparently, big head. Now, what, what's interesting about that is uh, or the, Plato's argument is you see what's going on there. The artist has lost all interest in what something actually is like and is only focusing on getting the look of it right to you. And I think that's one big part of Plato's worry about the representational arts, that they're, that they're just playing to the to the manipulation of images, what we would call the simulacrum, and not trying to make the appearance be something that could lead us to actual information about the thing. That's so fascinating because like nowadays, obviously it's a very popular trend to have something be like a cool illusion or, you know, a mural that you look at it from a different way or sculpture. There's a, a famous sculpture down here in Buenos Aires, um, that's supposed to like represent the missing people during the military junta. And it's like, you turn it in one way and you see all these people and then you walk around the other way and it's just a mess of metal or something. And, and that's like a trend, it's a fashion. That, that's like kind of what it makes it art. So it's amazing to think that Plato would have been like that, that's untrue, that's falsehood. Yeah, and let's take it a step further. Uh, so you're looking at a, at a drawing of a table. So forget a, a sculpture now for a minute, a, a drawing or a painting of a table. And of course you see one side of it because that's what paintings are. Now, you, you're curious, you think, what would the other side of that uh, table look like? So you, you turn the painting over and of course you don't see the other side of the table. Well, of course the answer is don't be, don't be an idiot. Once you learn how to look at a painting, you know that the other side of the painting is not gonna show you the other side of the table. And at this point, I believe Plato would say, that's not being an, an idiot. What, what's, what's, what's really perverse and corrupt about learning to appreciate art is knowing that your eyes are not gonna lead you to the true information about this table, right? That's what's that's what's weird. You know, here's this nice, this you know, this this, this well-intentioned child 
seeking to learn the table and we say, oh, ha ha, this is art. That means you can't find out about the table by looking at it. And so by, by making the child not more primitive, but more sophisticated about art, we thereby make them more perverse about their own act of seeing. I think that's what, what really bugs Plato. So what you, would Plato think about Picasso's cubism? Would he been like, yes, finally, somebody's trying to like <laughs> picture, like, bravo. And yet, ironically, you know, cubism makes it look almost unrecognizable sometimes, even though he's trying to show all the sides at the same time. Sorry here. Uh, I've actually thought about this question. And I can't come to a decision. Uh, I mean, there's a, there is a part of me that agrees that he'd say, okay, well, cubism at least confronts us with with the reality of what looking at an object is like. Uh, on the other hand, you know, so I'm just giving you what, I'm showing you why I don't have an answer. Yeah. <laughs> um, on the other hand, uh, he, he might say, um, the problem is whenever we appeal as artists to just the act of looking, we make, we make people enjoy looking without learning more than they enjoy looking and therefore learning. And that's what's wrong with art. When you like the appearance without any interest in the reality. Hmm, yeah, I don't, I, <laughs> it, there, there's a lot to, to ponder on that one. Yeah, yeah, people have been chewing that over. <laughs> now, okay, so maybe maybe we should use this as a moment to move forward because I think this this kind of leads into the next point is psychology. Um, yeah. because this is something else you sort of focus on, and we are sort of already talking about art and and reality and perception. So maybe moving on, what is sort of the intersection between art and psychology? Like how do those interact? Mm. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's very interesting. And again, and, and, you're, and you're quite right. You know, one of the things that, that kept me attached to Plato from one of the first few times that I read him was, uh, was his psychological insight. I'm not going to pretend that Plato had a theory the way uh, a modern psychologist has a theory. You know, I, I certainly wouldn't claim that he went around and conducted studies or, you know, uh, ran experiments. He was an armchair psychologist. I would say he was a he was an unusually perceptive observer of those around him and of the peculiarities of personality. I, I will give him that. But as I said, I'm not pretending that he's got a scientific theory. And one of the things he, he figures out is that there are irrational motivations. You know, and he's, he's, he, I, the Republic in particular strikes me as very alert to the nature of inner conflict, you know, and not just that you want to do something and you're also uh, torn, you want not to do it, but there are, that there are different kinds of inner conflict. I think that's just a brilliant insight. There's, there's, you know, there's, there's one, there's one time you might say when, uh, when you're thirsty, but you know that the, the, the water is poisonous, so you don't drink it. So that's your thirst 
being fought against by, by your reason. And then there's another time when you might uh, get angry and you have this impulse to, you know, to berate someone, but you also think, you know, uh, this is not the right time to express anger. And those are different conflicts. Okay, so so I, I I think it's just it's very insightful of Plato to see that. And so as you know, he works out a fairly sophisticated uh, tripartite psychology of the human soul. Okay. Now, in Book Ten of the Republic, uh, there's this interesting line. They had talked about poetry, about drama in particular. What what Socrates calls mimesis which can be translated as, you know, imitation, emulation, representation. And, and he has already banned poetic mimesis from the good city. And then he comes back to it and he says, he's, uh, Socrates says to Glaucon, now that we've seen what the soul is like, now we've seen that the types of souls there can be, we've got another reason to ban uh, mimetic poetry. So he explicitly says, we're going to tie the psychological theory together with the criticism of poetry. And you might say, well, it stands to reason, not so much with sculpture, but when you're seeing a tragedy, you're seeing people worked up uh, in a grip of strong emotions, uh, some, you know, with, with, you might say, wholesome emotions, others with more perverse emotions. You think, wow, if, if, if you've got a psychological theory, it surely can explain what's going on here. And uh, then this ambiguity, as I see it, uh, by the way, um, not everybody is going to agree with what I'm saying here, just so you know. Those are the uh, best ideas. I got okay. <laughs> okay, good. Just a, 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 a consumer warning. Okay. Um, where do, you, where do you apply the psychological theory to this phenomenon, this fascinating, complex phenomenon of tragedy? Okay, is your theory gonna explain what's going on in the characters? Is it gonna explain what's going on in the author? Is it gonna explain what's going on in the audience? Now, what I find interesting is that when you, when you really try to think clearly about what Socrates says in book 10 of the Republic, sometimes he's pushing in one direction, sometimes in another. You know, you're saying, so what's, where's the, where's the psychological problem in tragedy? Just, you know, and he'll talk about the nature of the tragic poet, but then he'll talk about the characters in the, in the tragedy. And then he'll talk about the members of the audience. Now, I'll tell you why I find this particular intersection or the ambiguity of the application especially interesting. So in, um, in the 20th century, and people like to point out that psychoanalysis emerged at roughly the same time as film. You know, the, 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 yes, the, the, they're the same age. They're, <laughs> if not siblings, Funnily, we're both talking from like capital cities of psychoanalysts. Like Buenos Aires actually has the highest rate of psychoanalysts per capita. There, everybody has a therapist. So this is like, 
every single person starts off a sentence with, you know, my therapist said. <laughs> oh, wow. And of course, you're aware that New York City has a few analysts. <laughs> just a few. Just a few. <laughs> so, yes, I, you know, I, I, uh, I just, I, I, I really considered it as like a, a little personal milestone one day. I was having a conversation with a psychoanalyst friend. Uh, she wanted to talk about a dream that she had had. <laughs> and then and then she said, uh, and let's let's identify the wish element in this dream. And I thought, wow, <laughs> you know, not just talking to an analyst about a dream, but talking to the analyst about their own dream. <laughs> right. Now I'm really living in New York. <laughs> you, made it, you made it. Yeah. You're now officially a New Yorker. <laughs> That's right. OK, so. Well, it's interesting because. Uh, from a pretty early point in psychoanalysis, and, and, and you see some of this uh, uh, in Freud too, uh, people try to apply psychoanalysis to literary works, you know, and, and Freud does a few examples. He's appropriately cautious about what he can and cannot say. But after all, um, uh, the story of Oedipus for him, <laughs> yeah. has, has, has psychoanalytic resonance. And Freud's student, Jones, actually talks about uh, at length about Hamlet and how Hamlet himself would like to be Oedipus, but right. And, and the reason Hamlet is so furious with uh, Claudius is that uh, Claudius killed Hamlet's father and married Hamlet's mother. In other words, Claudius did all the things that Hamlet wanted to do. Okay, now in that approach, in, in Ernest Jones's approach, uh, you, you do a kind of psychoanalysis of a literary character. Um, sometimes or more frequently, a psychoanalyst might talk about the author of the work. And when psychoanalysis moved into film studies, uh, it, this same ambiguity that you find in book 10 of The Republic, uh, expresses itself there too. Sometimes they're talking about the director, you know, you know, let's, let's psychoanalyze the director. Sometimes the, the natural object seems to be the characters in the film in, um, in what's broadly referred to as a uh, Lacanian film theory. Uh, the emphasis came to be on the members of the audience and what, what a particular mode of editing or a kind of scene did to the psyche of the person in the audience. All I want to observe is that psychoanalysis, as it brought itself to film, repeated that ambiguity and that indecision that we find in, uh, in the Republic when Plato brings his kind of psychoanalysis to bear on uh, tragedy. So, uh, long story, long an answer to your to your question. Um, I find it interesting that psychology seems like it ought to have something to say about art, and yet presents us with this difficulty. We're not sure how to go about applying it to art. Mm. Yeah, and it's okay. So you you bring up film, but obviously there's so many literary evidence even before film, I mean, I'm a big Russophile, so obviously Dostoevsky jumps 
to mind as somebody who's, I mean, a perfect example of trying to understand the the human psyche uh, in it. But I I was going to say another point that I guess you have to worry when you have Sophocles or Euripides work. I mean, Euripides is a weird guy, let's be honest. He, he's dark and twisted and takes perfectly normal stories and makes them even worse, or pretty bad stories and makes them really, really worse. And, 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 and yet, as Aristotle said, you can, you can criticize Euripides all you want, but he was the most tragic of the poets. But, but uh, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, and it's interesting that he was less popular in his day and age for being so controversial. And yet, I feel like he is translate better to modern era than say Aeschylus or something like that. Like that his stories are compelling in a way to us. But I was gonna say the problem we have though with writers, playwrights, you know, artists that have been dead for so long we can't ask them questions is we do have the ability to misinterpret. And I like to think of, you know, Beckett's issue with waiting for Godot. I mean, everybody said, oh, surely Godot is God. And he's like, no, it's not. Stop saying that. Um, so if you don't have the artist to correct misinterpretation, then the mm-hmm. art, I guess, takes a life of its own that really reflects the psychology of the modern audience rather than anything to do with the ancient stuff. Ah, yes. And uh, a lot of great things in what you just said. Um, Incidentally, now I wonder if this, I, I, I have, a, I, I have a, a colleague at the, at the CUNY Graduate Center in, in theater, and he really works in a lot of non-Western theater, um, Japanese and, and other traditions. And one day we were talking about ancient tragedy, and he said, he said, not, not, not by way of criticizing Aeschylus or Sophocles, but he said to in the modern, on the modern stage, Euripides is the first one you can actually stage. Just to, to his mind, the others just did not present in the same way as theatrical events, okay? Or, or not that he was, again, I, I, make, I make it sound as though to him, Sophocles and Aeschylus had not gotten the trick down yet. Uh, I think what he meant was a modern audience can see a play of Euripides and respond to it as as a theatrical play less problematically than they can with Sophocles or or Aeschylus. Okay, well, I'm going to come to defense of Flectites because when Ah, I was- Not what I would have expected. I was in college. That was the first play I directed for the Classic Society in Edinburgh. And I, it was funny because the same year, the Lord of the Rings came out. And so I kind of combined the idea of the precious, the ring with Philectetes is the precious, the bow. And that play is an entire, it's, there's no blood, there's no violence. It's just basically three characters and three soldiers that just interact in trying to persuade somebody to do something they don't want to do and somebody who's bitter and angry about it. It's a, just a complete delve into mm. psychological conflict. Mm. Obviously I have to justify it because it's my baby. So. <laughs> yeah, no, it's fascinating. Yeah. And he's right to be bitter and angry. Yes, yeah. he was deserted on an island. If I'm not mistaken, that's the earliest play 
in which a character draws our attention to the ambiguity in the word xenos, that it, you know, that it means both someone very different from you and potentially an enemy, but also it can mean someone you have a particular connection with and therefore kind of a friend. Um, Well, and it's great too, because Odysseus is horrible person in it. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Not that he's not, not horrible other times. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's, yeah, it's, there must have been some some other Odysseus traditions kicking around. And and I and I believe those people who say that the Homeric poems exist to kind of eliminate rival traditions. And like here's going to be the canonical story of Odysseus that you get to hear. Um, you know, he went on one more adventure after he got home and then nothing happened so don't come to us you know from from Corinth and saying no Odysseus slept here he didn't sleep there okay um but in some of those rival traditions he must have been even more unscrupulous I mean his uh, uh his 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 grandfather Autolycus right the 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 wolf itself <laughs> the the one who we're told gives Odysseus his name, right? As like, what is it? Hateful or someone who will be hated. <laughs> um, he was apparently an unscrupulous character. And yeah, so Odysseus has that side uh, that, that and this, this might be, this might be the only real remnant of that, that, very mean side of of Odysseus in classical literature, right? Uh, You mentioned the Circe novel and she, obviously Miller knows her stuff and and her depiction of Odysseus in his final day, uh, I think is really sensitive to uh, this other side of the tradition and the really unlikable side of the man. Yeah, um, but okay, okay. So, so you're gonna you're gonna make your you you can defend the staging possibilities of Sophocles, and I love I love the precious bow. Um, but I I guess I'm still tempted to say that the psychology in Euripides is somehow more human psychology than mythological psychology. Is that, would, would that be fair? Yeah, I mean, like the reality is that for most people reading Euripides, I mean, hopefully this is the reality, they're gonna have a much harder time relating to the characters because they're so extreme. I mean there's not that many women who murder their children, fortunately. So that's, that's going to be a hard thing for them to relate to. You know, there's, there's many times in, in that instance where he just takes it that extra step further. And I guess the question is, is that psychologically, what is the value about reading that stuff that is so horrible? You know, like, why do we want to read Dostoevsky? Why do we want to see infanticide and matricide and incest and all these horrible things like what what i mean i'm sure Plato have plenty to say about that (laughs) 
You shouldn't. Stop that. Um, <laughs> well, and yet, of course, we do. Um, and look, look at one level. I'm not reducing all uh, theatrical spectatorship to this phenomenon, just pointing out a, 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 a point of similarity. I was walking home and uh, back in the days when you know people walked around <laughs> and and uh, uh, there had been work going on a, a scaffold on a very high building near near the building i live in and the scaffold had partly collapsed so that the two or three uh, workers who were on the scaffold were hanging on by the time I got there, the, the fire department had been called. And, you know, fire departments know what to do about people, you know, just hanging, hanging out the outside window. It's, it's obviously, they've encountered this before. Uh, and there was a, a growing crowd of people staring. Now, uh, it goes without saying that the people who were standing in the street staring were, were not going to help. You know, there's nothing they could have done to help. The fire department, I was very glad they were there and they were helping. And, and I thought, okay, they've taken care of it. I don't need to phone the fire department. You know, and I went home. But, but a lot of people wanted to watch. Why? They weren't watching so that they could go in there and help. There's something about a very dangerous uh situation unfolding in front of you that you are powerless to do anything about right so it's not as though you watch when you should be rushing in to help right someone stumbles in the street and it's your responsibility to go help them across the street you watch because you either well you could do nothing at all but you don't do nothing at all the temptation is almost overwhelming to watch this dangerous situation that you can't do anything about. Now, there's more to tragedy than that. Nevertheless, we are drawn in both cases to watch with fascination uh, when someone's life might be at stake. Well, I mean, we, we know that every single time there's a traffic jam because of a car accident and everybody's doing the rubbernecking. The rubbernecking. Um, it, it's like watching a train wreck. I mean, it's, it's literally embedded in our language uh, <laughs> as something that basically reveals that we're all morbid. <laughs> and, 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 and tragedy takes advantage of that morbidity in our, in our viewing habits. Absolutely. I think I've got to say thank you so much for taking your time to talk with me today because you have been very illuminating both in in the all of Plato's realms and art and literature and uh, it's been an absolute delight to learn a bit more about Plato and his work. Well, Anya, I have to thank you for this opportunity. Great conversation. Uh, now I have to watch or listen to all of the conversations you've held because I can just imagine uh, what you've brought out of all these other uh, interlocutors you have. So thanks so much. Thank you for listening to Classical Wisdom Speaks, a podcast dedicated to bringing ancient wisdom to modern minds. 
Classical Wisdom Society members can listen to the entire podcast with Dr. Pappas on classicalwisdom.com. <laughs>